0: Join Global Genes and the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine for the annual Rare Drug Development Symposium, June 6th and 7th in Philadelphia. The symposium will focus on the drug development process and is designed to connect, educate, and inspire rare disease advocates. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash rdds. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is RareCast. When Penny Howard's daughter Harper died in 2016, From the rare neurodevelopmental condition, CDKL5 deficiency disorder, Howard and her husband donated her brain and other organs to research. The donation provided researchers with the first brain of someone who had CDKL5. Today, Harper's cell lines live at the University of California, San Diego, and are used to provide cells to researchers from around the world. Her brain tissue is at the Harvard Brain Tissue Resource Center. We spoke to Howard, founder and president of Hope for Harper, about her daughter's life and death, the decision to donate her brain, and her journey to becoming an advocate for organ donation. Penny, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. We're
0: going to talk about your daughter, Harper, her experience with the rare condition CDKL5, and how you became an advocate, not just for rare disease patients, but for organ donation. Let's start with Harper, who was born in April 2010. How did you become aware there was a problem, and what did it take to get a diagnosis?
1: Um, Well, okay, I'll I'll speak from reality at the time, right? Because at the time, we didn't realize actually that there was an issue until about two weeks old when my aunt came. And the reason my aunt and uncle came into town was specifically to see the baby. And my aunt, of course, held the baby all day long. And this was my second one. So I wasn't holding her all day long because I had to tend to the two-year-old that I had also demanding my time, you know, telling me that the baby already ate today so she could wait her turn, right? (laughs) And when my aunt held her, she came to me and said, have you noticed that Harper's having these little jerks sometimes, and they just are a few seconds long, maybe, but they're coming, you know, throughout the day. And I was like, no. Um, and so she she would always try to call us over for them, but we would miss them because they would be like maybe 20, 30 seconds long at that time. So when we got home that day, I stayed up with her all night specifically to um, figure out what she was talking about because I we had had a dog, not to compare kids to a dog, but we had had dogs prior to having kids. And one of the dogs had a seizure disorder. And, you know, we were taught to track these seizures by the vet and all these things. That's kind of how I knew um, what to do when we had Harper, right? And, and we noticed Harper having seizures, right? Um, so I held her to look for this episode. And when I saw it, we, we kind of automatically knew what we could possibly most likely be dealing with. Right. Um, now talking to you from a different angle, looking back in time, I think that we had this problem in utero because Lily was, is my first child and she was a breach, but she was tangled up. And so when we got her out, she had, um, was kind of in the splits and she ended up with this muscle spasm for just a little while until she got all evened out. And they, we called it the Jimmy leg, you know, no big deal. It's just like her leg would shake, you know, spasm a little bit, just her leg, not, not seizures. Right. Um, and I thought, Oh, Harper must have the Jimmy leg, like Lily, because I would feel those things. They were a little more rhythmic than hiccups would be. Right. Um, and then, you know, there's just a couple of other moments when after she was born, like she would stare because she's all swaddled up. They don't let you like have them naked. So you can't really see if they're moving or not moving. And um, she was um, just staring like she's like she wasn't looking at anything, like just glazed over staring. And it would be for just 20 seconds like she wasn't with you. And then she would cry. And we've thought, oh, that's kind of weird like we don't but every child's different, so we didn't try to compare. but then two weeks later we ended up with with seizure disorder. So um, so in, in the time, it was two weeks. but in, in looking back, I think it was from the beginning.
0: And when was the name CDLK5 given to your daughter's condition?
1: So that was a very, very new disorder at the time. It hadn't circulated its way through the medical system entirely. It wasn't on the epilepsy genetics panels and things like that yet. Um, So we, you know, we saw her pediatrician saw, you know, got paired up with a specialist, a neurologist, and we just went through the textbook, you know, scenarios of trying to stop seizures. Um, We didn't really have a a known cause for her disorder or for her seizures. Right. So we were just going through the textbook, you know, medicines going down the list. And, um, you know, a few months in we, uh, my mother-in-law saw on 60 minutes, a doctor in at Boston children's who had a research lab, Dr. Francis Jensen, and she's devoted her life to studying infants with seizures. And she said, you should look into her So I did. And then I, I asked to go and see her. I tried to make an appointment. Her appointment list was a year long. She was seeing patients at the time. She no longer sees patients, but I I had to wait a year. And I was like, well, I don't have a year. So please put me on a waiting list. And, um, a couple weeks later, um, we were given a spot to, to fly to Boston and have Harper seen by Dr. Jensen. And Dr. Jensen evaluated her and took, sent her for a bunch of blood tests. And those tests took about four months. And then we were called with the results. And the results were that she had CDKL5 disorder. And that was a disorder that was RET-like um, in, in nature. So uh, lennox Gestalt, uh, West syndrome, it was kind of like you, those people that had CDKL5 and it wasn't defined in the past, were kind of classified under that as similar to those disorders, right? So that's how we found out.
0: When you got the diagnosis, what were you told about the condition and, and her diagnosis?
1: Um, so Dr. Denson was great. Now, Harper was nine months old at this time, right? At the time we got the diagnosis. So we had already dealt with seizures for nine months, you know, trying to go through textbook medicine, right? Dr. Jensen contacted um, her current neurologist and spent about two hours on the phone coming up with a plan of action for Harper's Care and um, talking about CDKL5 and what that was and what it meant. And um, we were, it was a bittersweet moment for us because it was a cause for the seizures, but it was um, the cause had no treatment, no cure. No way to stop any of this. Um, and there wasn't much really known about what CDKL5 is, what the gene itself does. Um, she was like one in 600 at that time. And she was the only one with a mutation like hers. So we had nothing to compare to how our lives would be other than, you know, living living with seizures and, and special needs. So what was Harper like? So in the beginning, uh, the first three years of Harper's life were just really, you know, I'm not gonna, uh, sugarcoat it. It was horrific. Um, it was hard to live with. Um, it was hard to have, to bring Lily up in, um, that because it was just a different kind of world, um, different kind of sibling relationship. You know, Harper would never be able to progress and play. It was always in this infant stage, if that makes sense. Um, because Harper just existed. She, she, she was like this doll that we had to feed and change. And, and that was her life. And every day was, um, was a scary day because we didn't know if, if she, we were going to go to her and she was going to be wake up. We didn't know if she was going to, going to die, you know? Um, because that's the reality of what we were living with. And, um, it just changed everything about our relationship with each other, um, and our lives, um, with, you know, as a couple and as parents, because, um, we felt like we had to monitor her and be on top of her, um, so much that Lily was taught how to watch for seizures while we would, you know, take care of dinner or take a shower. Um, and. Harper slept in the room with me and Dustin slept on the couch. So that changed our, you know, relationship because she had to be, you know, watched, uh, and just to make sure that if she needed attention, that we didn't know what we were dealing with, you know, so it really changed everything. And it was really, really a very hard, challenging, difficult first three years. Um, but then after that, you know, we, we had some hope, right. Um, we found, uh, supplement to her medication that seemed to uh, work really well for Harper. And we were able to obtain some seizure control. And in that, we were able to see some of Harper's personality come out. We were able to get her an eye gaze device, which is a computer that uh, allowed her to communicate with us by her looking at it. And then the computer screen telling us where she looked so she could Say I pottied, or I, I want to read a book, or whatever, and um, you know she was just. We got to find out what kind of music she liked, and um, that was that was the fun. The last two years were were really a lot of fun um, with her. So still challenging because her medical needs got more severe. She ended up having to have a vesicostomy. Um, she had a G button put in for feeding and and things like that. So life was still very hard. Um, but it wasn't as um, horrific as the first three years because we had come to terms with what we were dealing with, and we got to see some personality come out.
0: When you created the patient group, Hope for Harper, what were you hoping to accomplish?
1: So initially, Hope for Harper was created. So after we got the diagnosis at nine months old, um, we processed that mentally and we went back to Dr. Jensen a few months later and we had noticed in that time period um, some patterns in Harper's seizures. And then when we were able to connect with a, um, some other parents, a little parent group that had been started for CDKL5, we noticed that some of their kids also had these same type of patterns with them. And so we thought, I wonder if we can ask Dr. Jensen, who has a research lab, to do research for us based on the patterns we're seeing to help us find a way, or is there a repurposed drug or something that we can do to help Harper's seizures be more controlled, right? And so we called Dr. Jensen back and approached her about this and, and asked her what something like that would would cost and if her lab would be willing and able and capable of doing something like that. And, you know, she thought about it and um, she uh, saw value in what we were asking and agreed to do it. And so we created hope for Harper in order to pay for that, that then became a nonprofit funnel to pay for that because we felt like if it could help Harper, it could help some of these others that had the same, the same issues. And, um, her work was published um, April two thousand and nineteen in the Journal of Neuroscience, um, and so that was really exciting for us um, to have that done. But uh, originally, that's what Hope for Harper was created for, and it was a it was a struggle, I'll tell you. Like it was, it seems like a great idea, and like it was really good to do, but there were many, many, many times because, like I said to you, and there's really no way for me to help people truly understand how hard um, life was in caring for Harper and managing just daily life. Right. Um, and then trying to manage this nonprofit on top of it. There were many, many times when I thought I just can't do it. Maybe I need to be really just focusing on my family. And, um, I would get an email and that would, someone would say, you know, I really appreciated what you shared about your experience with Harper because I'm experiencing the same thing. And I'm now I know I'm not alone. And so that kept me going because ultimately what I'm doing is I've, I I became transparent in our life so that if anything we were going through for right or wrong, never to say that what we're doing is the right way, because there are many things we would do different, but to say, this is what we're doing. And if anything that we're doing helps you in any way, be it, don't do it this way, (laughs) or maybe think about it this way. Um, that's what we wanted to share with people.
0: Shortly before her sixth birthday, Harper developed pneumonia. W- what happened?
1: Um, well, every year for Harper, um, there you know she had issues. Any anything could put her in the hospital. Anything made her um, really sick. Uh, the common cold that everybody typically gets and they get over and it doesn't, they, they still continue to go to the grocery store and go to work and, and they can function through. Um, but they just don't feel a hundred percent, um, for Harper, it puts her in pediatric ICU, right? Um, that common cold causes, uh, two week problems of, am I going to survive or not? And needing to be on oxygen. So that was really difficult and that happened every year, right? So we took upon ourselves to have a number of precautions to help minimize that because before we realized what was happening, it was happening more than just once a year, right? Um, So we were able to kind of take some precautions and we knew it was going to happen once a year. And so we kind of expected this and we thought, oh no, like she's, she's, Gonna go in the hospital, and so we packed our bag and we just kind of prepped for two weeks stay and and didn't really think much of it. I really didn't think that we wouldn't be coming home with her when we went there. And in hindsight, I think that's probably good that I treated it that way. But then I look back and I think, well, did I really, did I really not think we wouldn't be coming home with her because? Or maybe I did. Maybe I just accepted the fact that at some point in her life, um, we wouldn't be coming home with her. And so what I had done is two years prior to 2016, I had made the decision, Dustin and I talked and made the decision um, that we thought that it would be best, the best way to continue to help the scientific community would be to donate Harper's organs if and when she should possibly pass. Right. Because we had started Hope for Harper. We had all this research. We now have this inside look into how science works for trying to find treatments for these disorders. And we thought, you know, the best thing that we could do for Harper to help continuing, because we won't have Harper to share our experiences of anymore is we could donate her to science. Right. And so we thought, okay, now how do we do that? Because nobody talks about that, you know. Nobody wants to talk about death, even when they don't have special needs kids. But you add special needs to it, and really nobody wants to talk about it, right? And so, um, you know, I had to really find people. How do I do this? What am I looking for? How can this happen? I really don't want to miss my opportunity and talk about this while Harper was well. And so I'm really thankful that those last two years Harper was doing doing fairly well and had personality. Not to say she didn't have struggles and wasn't sick. She just wasn't as it wasn't as horrible as the first three years when we just didn't know every day if she was gonna be awake, you know? So um so we started talking about that with people and it took two years of off and on communication till we got to where we figured out these are the steps you would take to donate Harper to science, if and when that comes. And literally 30 days to a T, 30 days from the day I found out my steps of progression of what to do, she got sick and two days later she died. So when I went to the hospital, I I kind of had in the back of my mind like, okay, I need to remember my progressions of steps, right? And also over the two-year time frame, I had spent time learning about Harper, right? So I got, because she was able to communicate because we had some seizure control from this added supplement, Right. I was able to get to know her, so I would make mental notes to myself. Harper really loves Elvis, right? Um, Harper's favorite number is fifteen. Um, Harper's favorite colors purple and orange. And when I would find these out, I would make these mental notes to remember that, right? And but I didn't know that maybe I was subconsciously compiling this information because she wasn't always going to be here.
0: It's got to be an incredibly difficult thing for a parent to think about. How did you begin that conversation?
1: Of of, uh, donating Harper?
0: Of considering, of looking into investigating how to go about making organ donation. Yeah.
1: So, well, with Dustin and I, we're very, you know, we were very, we took a long time to process what we were dealing with, and we knew, um, we knew that. you know, Harper's lifespan, we didn't know what Harper's lifespan would be, right? Like there, there were kids that had passed away at six months, kids that had passed away at 30, right? So we didn't know what we were dealing with, but we knew inevitably it would be us burying her most likely, unless a treatment was found that prolonged the ability for a CDKL5 child to live longer than us, we were going to be burying her, right? So we just, T- took the time to, to, to face that, accept that, which doesn't mean we give up hope about it. It just means you have to accept it so you can continue to move forward, right? And do something, right? Productive. So we talked about that with each other. And we said, yeah, you know, we, we can do that. We can donate her. And then it was like, okay, well, what does that mean? Because we we flew blind into this. We had no idea what that meant, what that would entail. It was a cluster. It was it was a cluster. It is not for everybody to do. But it is something that I don't think people can really make the informed choice to do or not to do unless they know what that means and how to do it and how, how you would go about that. Right. And that's why we have a big push for advocacy for this because I feel like it's something that's not really not talked about at all no parent no no disorder group even if you're talking about like alzheimer's right they don't want to talk about organ donation but it hugely advances science to have organs to look at right because human tissue is different than animal models and the what science is going on is animal models unless human tissue is donated right so I, I actually went to Dr. Jensen because I have a great relationship with her. And I just flat out said, Dr. Jensen, when Harper dies, I want to donate her brain. How do I do that? Who do I talk to? What does that look like? And I began to talk about that with other heads of different um, a- different advocacy groups. And that's when we discovered the process that that you would go through in order to donate um, donate your child.
0: If you haven't thought this through ahead of time, how much time does someone actually have to make a decision in the moment?
1: Um, I would advise that this be thought through ahead of time. I think this really needs to be something that is discussed before the time of death. I don't think that the time of death is a time to make any decision that has not been pre-planned um or pre-discussed i i think it's very similar to a d a dnr do not resuscitate right um and i'll be honest with you i i i had a do not resuscitate for harper and a year before harper passed away we were in the hospital for her little here year, yearly problem and um and she it was four thirty in the morning, and her heart rate just dropped, and it was consistently declining, like very rapidly, and to the point where it was no longer working. And alarms were going off everywhere that had woke me up, and nurses came in, and they were all dumbfounded because nobody knew what was happening. Um, there was no seizure; it was just unresponsiveness, and I kind of said. You need to do something, or you need to move. And um, then Harper came back, and you know her heart, her heart rate came back. I don't know if that was like some sort of seizure episode. I don't. We don't. Nobody still knows what that was. It only happened one time. But in that moment is when I realized a do not resuscitate is not something I can do. Right? I had never really taken the time to actually think about what does it mean to have do not resuscitate on file. And what that means is, your child dies, and you do nothing, and that's okay. Um, you know, uh, if that is really something that you've decided you want to do, and you've thought through it. But that's my point: is I think these are things you really need to mentally put yourself in that moment, and that's really difficult to do. And I'll tell you how I did that for organ donation, and it seems a little morbid, but you know, Harper would be asleep and i would look at her and i would i would think that this is this is someday what i will be looking at but i know harper's alive and breathing now right but there will be a day when i'm looking at her and she won't be alive and breathing and this is how it will look am i okay with this and what do i want to do at this point right and um and that's how i came to terms with yes i really do want to donate her organs to science
0: where is harper's tissue today and and how has it been used
1: so um harper's brain went to uh the harvard brain bank and Dr. Jensen has the, some of the brain slices for, uh, that she utilized in her research that was published in April of 2019. And then Harper's skin cells um, went to, um, and her cord blood and, and all of the, the body fluid and all of the other things, right, they went to the University of California, San Diego And they were able to take that and um, grow them into uh, brain cells. So living brain cells in a Petri dish. They basically uh, took the stem cells and made them into little mini brains in a dish. So now you can kind of compare um, uh, what a living brain of Harper's might have looked like um, to the actual brain tissue that Harper had, and that was that was the point of of doing those two things. So we have two very unique donation situations that we were able to do with Harper. And there's there's many other options in organ donation that I didn't know about until you know after the fact. ours Our focus was primarily to utilize Harper to progress uh, scientific research to find a treatment that's valid for CDKL five. That was our purpose of donation, right? Um, but there's other ways to donate to advanced science as well. Um, you know you can donate to be a cadaver which is a, a, a body for medical students to use. Um, you can I, I think in the world of special needs it, you can't donate organs to save the life of someone else because you have the special need you have the, the genetic component that's not right in The organ that you're donating. So, um, but as a, as her parent, um, I can donate my brain and to the brain bank because, and that would be a unique situation because I'm a control brain, but also I'm a parent brain of the, of Harper's brain. Right. So there's comparison there. Um, uh, there's a lot of different, um, things to look at. And to, you know, I didn't, I toured the brain bank, Um, that was a unique opportunity, and uh, found out that they're very much lacking in control brains, um, which, you know, are basically just, I guess, quote, unquote, normal brains, brains that don't have a known disorder to them, because they have to have that in comparing, you know, in comparison in, in scientific research. So
0: well, you've become uh, an advocate for the donation of organs and tissues. What should people know about this?
1: Um, the, I, think it's, I think I think I have a couple of things that I would tell people, right? I come at this from a very neutral standpoint. It's something I did because it's something I chose to do. And I, I believe that that's what we needed to do for Harper. But I do not believe that it is the right thing for everybody. And I do believe that everybody needs to have the information about what it means to donate the organs in order to make the right decision for them, right? So this is non judgmental, although I advocate for it in a sense that I think there is a responsibility of every organization, um, every advocate organization for any disease or disorder to have this information available to those people that are living with this disorder so that they can make an informed decision about what they want to do. Because I think that it would also help um, the disorder find treatment faster, right? It helps science. And that's the whole, like, that's what all of these parents or uh you know, children of all, you know, with Alzheimer's parent, they're all looking for that, that treatment, right? And I think you need to have this information more available to those living with the disorder so they can make an informed decision on if it's right for them. Right. And again, it's not something that's right for everyone, but I just don't think you can make that decision unless you have all the information. And you also have to know that it's a job, right? So um for us when we decided to do that, Um, you know, I was scared because I didn't know what that meant. So I kind of, I didn't tell the doctors that that's what we were going to do until the very last minute. And they were very, um, I found it very interesting because the doctor said, okay, that's great. We're not going to worry about that right now. We're going to try to save Harper's life first. Right. And this is at the moment of they were going, they were doing CPR and they were giving her another EpiPen to bring her back. Right. And, um, they were like, we're going to do three rounds of CPR and then hopefully that'll work and if that doesn't we'll talk about what you want to do right and i just kind of thought if you told somebody you were going to be an organ donor then they weren't going to save you <laughs> you know i don't know where that came from it's just kind of what i thought and so um but that's not the case at all at least it wasn't our experience right and um and then i also thought you know we didn't know cuz nobody talks about this right so we didn't know are they going to whisk carper away and we never get to get to see her again. Like, it's like she died and instantly she's gone. And if that's the case, we'll deal with it because we really want to donate her to science. But that wasn't the case. We actually got six hours with her, um, before she had to, her body had to be refrigerated. Right. And, uh, um, it was, I was about the fifth hour, you know, uh, we bathed her and, and, you know, we spent some time. And about the fifth hour, I was getting antsy. I was like, somebody better come get her because if they mess this up, I'm going to be really mad. <laughs> you know? And um, and then you have 24 hours after time of death. Within that 24 hour time frame, they have to have harvested all the organs they're going to utilize or need for um, preserve them uh, appropriately for science. Um, so you have 24 hours after that. So what that means is you don't really get time to grieve. We got the first five hours to grieve her loss. And then um, I remember we left the hospital at like five in the morning and we came home and went to bed. And at eight o'clock in the morning, the phone was ringing and it was having to verify paperwork and verify this and make sure that all our signatures were where they needed to be. And um, and it was a job and I didn't want to wake up to do that job, but we didn't have the choice. Like it, we, we had already made the choice, right. To donate her. So we had to finish the job and then, then you can process and grieve. Right. So I think that's important for people to know too.
0: I imagine other parents who are considering this have approached you. What do they want to know?
1: Um, well, I mean, I, I've tried to disclose everything. I think some people want to know just some of the things I have already said and that I wanted to know, like, do they try to save your child? Do they, do you get time with them? Um, Another one, can you have an open casket? You know, this was really a difficult concept to, to, we we chose to, to cremate Harper's remains because there are some remains. They don't take the whole body and it's not, Frankensteinish, you know. Um and so um they we we needed to see Harper again after or I did anyway. Um I needed to see Harper again after they had already harvested the organs just to to see her in a better light, right? Because when she when a body dies, Um, and this is something you can look up and hospice nurses tell you, right. And again, something you don't find out to the very end, it, it kind of, it's, it's well, it looks, it looks bad, right. That's why there's morticians and they make the body look back like it did. They look different when they're, when they're dying and kind of grayish and, and puffy. and, And it just didn't look like Harper to me, you know, and I just needed to see her again before she, I would never see her again after this, you know. And um, so I went back and the, the funeral home was very nice and let us in. And they said, just don't touch her. We've covered everything up that we can. She looks great. Like she's just in bed sleeping, but just don't touch her. Right. And we were like, okay. So, and she looked beautiful. She looked absolutely beautiful. And I was surprised. I was really surprised. Like you could have had, we could have had an open casket funeral. I don't know some people do that. I, that wasn't what we wanted to do, but you could have had one. Right. So I think people need to know that your kid isn't, isn't, um, doesn't look whole. Right. And, and so I think that's something to know. Um, and forgive me if I talk about this so bluntly, I've just, I've lived through it. And so to me, it's just, um, I think it's important that people have all this information. Right. So, um, but we chose to cremate her remains that were left, and um, I have her beside my bed in in a box. And then each of the kids, uh, her siblings, have a piece of her in their little small um, heart urn in their rooms. So that's that's what we chose to do with with Harper. The uh, the other thing I think is important that people should know too is probably that um, you know hospitals. You know the reason I think this is something that needs to be thought out is because. Um, even though it's something we wanted to do, the hospital wasn't allowed to let someone else come in and harvest the organs. That wasn't a staff of the hospital, right? Which means that we had to figure out how to, we had to move Harper from the hospital, um, morgue to a funeral home morgue in order for her organs to be harvested. One that would allow her organs to be harvested. And so, um, luckily we have a great community of people that we were involved in and our, we called our, our church and, and we said, we need, we need help. This is what we need. We need a funeral home. We had never thought that far, right? Right. Cause we didn't know all of these things. And so we were able to transport her to a funeral home that helped us out and allowed the pathologist that the brain bank had found to come in and harvest the organs appropriately. Um, so I, that's why I think this needs to be something that's discussed. Um, Beforehand, you know, and even if you agree that this is what you want to do, you can pre fill out the paperwork, right? Because there's paperwork that goes along with this too, right? So if you think about this beforehand, you can pre fill out this paperwork so you're not having to do it in the midst of tears, right? (laughs) Um, And you pre fill out the paperwork, but still, you can still always change your mind, right? Like even though you pre fill out the paperwork, at the end of the day, when you're sitting there, if you don't sign it, at time of death, um, then then you don't have. They're not going to come and and take the organs. So it's it's always something you can pre fill out and change your mind.
0: The rare disease community always talks about hope. Your your organization is Hope for Harper, uh, as you alluded to earlier. It doesn't do a good job of talking about grief and the grieving process let alone organ donation. I'm wondering, did this, having made this donation, did it help you with the grieving process at all?
1: Yes, for me. Yes. And I think for our whole family, because, well, okay, it was kind of weird. So I, so we donated Harper and she died in January and her birthday was in April. So it was literally like four months before her, what would have been her sixth birthday. So I thought, okay, what do I want to do for her sixth birthday? Mind you, this is just me and my experience, right? So other people are going to have their own experiences, their own feelings about this. And there's nothing wrong with their experiences. It doesn't mean theirs are um, mine or better or theirs are better. Everybody's going to have their own. So this is comes from a place of, of no judgment, right? Um, but for me, I was like, okay, I want to, I, I donated her. I want to go see her, right? I want to go see How Harper it looks in the form of science, right? Because and so I called the brain bank and I said, um, "Hey, I want to come take a tour. I want to I want to see your brain bank because we donated Harper and and we want to see the brain bank." And they were like, "Um, "We can't do that." And I was like, "Well, I don't want you to show me Harper's brain, although that'd be really cool." I'm like, "I want you to show me where the brains are kept. I just want a tour of the brain bank. I know Harper's in there somewhere." And I was like, "I just want to." want a tour. Well, they were very guarded because I was to them, you know, I didn't think about how I came across as this person that donated their kid and now wanted to come back and, and, um, and see it. But, but, but they met me. So, so six months later, they met me at a, at a conference where I had given a talk about organ donation. And they were like, now I understand why you wanted the tour, right? I wanted the tour because I'm an advocate for what I did. And I wanted to see and show people this side of science, this side of the process of what we went through to donate Harper. And so they were like, you can come for a tour anytime. I was like, great. So I ended up going to them later. But when they wouldn't let me tour, um, rightfully so, because they had no idea what I was (laughs) talking about, um, I called up the lab that had her in a dish, her cells, her living cells. And I was like, hey, I want to come and tour your lab my husband and I want to come to your lab and we're going to do this on April 12th. And they were like, sure, come on. You know? So at the university of California, San Diego the sock Institute, Dustin and I show up and um, you know, we had camera crews with us because we wanted to document this, but we wanted to be in the moment. Right. We, but now that's just part of, I wouldn't expect every family to do that. We did that because we thought we had the forethought because we had been dealing with a nonprofit organization of our lives being transparent for Six years now, right? So we we were already in that. We want to be in the moment of seeing this tour, but we need it documented because we want to share it because we want other people to see this side of organ donation and what we did and why, right? Um, but we were able to go to the lab and and see the the petri dish with Harper cells in it and hold it, and they showed it us under the microscope, and you could see the cells moving. And it was the coolest thing because it was Harper's cells that they took from her body that were still living and moving and they were feeding them. And it was the most amazing thing to see. And that those could be indefinitely regenerated into more and more cells until they found a treatment that would be suitable for CDKL5 kids so that no family would have to live the horrific experience that we lived. And that to me was so amazing. And that is why we donated Harper.
0: What was it like to be in a research facility and see living cells from your daughter there?
1: It was very emotional, very emotional. Um, it was, it was, I can't even, it was, to me, it made it it like, she's not, she's still here. Um, she just changed form right so um she just took on a different form in order to help in a different way she is she you know her her life living her living life couldn't provide more experiences that would help anyone she'd already lived those experiences and now she can provide experiences that will help people in the form of science and that was really um amazing to me. So, and it's, it's really cool. I've been able to take her siblings to see the lab as well. So I first, Dustin and I went and then, um, April. So then in August, um, we took Lily and, um, you know, to have li- Lily was eight when Harper passed away, like just a few weeks before her eighth birthday. And, um, So that was really challenging for Lily to process because she kind of doesn't remember life without Harper, right? And so now she has to live life without Harper. Well, to be able to take her and show her what Harper's doing now and how she's going to progress science and and help these other families that are living with this disorder, you know, so they maybe one day don't have to live with this disorder. um, That was a really neat experience to take Lily. To at the age of eight, like into a research facility. And I'm very grateful that they allowed her in. And then later, um, when Seth was five, because Seth was only 16 months when Harper passed away. So Seth has a subconscious memory of Harper's existence. Um, and he knows of Harper in his life, but he does not remember Harper being a part of his life, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so we were able to take seth at the age of five to the lab and um he was also able to hold the petri dish and we were able to explain this is harper living now this is how harper lives now right so that was a really cool experience for us and you know there are some families that have the thought um You know, I don't, I don't want to donate my child because I don't want, I don't like the thought of my child just living on a shelf in a lab. I don't like that. I don't want that for her, right? I don't want her to live there or him to live there for five, 10, 25 years until science decides that they can do something with it, right? And, and I completely understand that that view as well. Like that is a completely valid and acceptable way of viewing this also. So that's another reason I say, I really think you need to think this out.
0: Penny Howard, executive director and founder of Hope for Harper. Penny, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening.